0: Here we are, the Horror Stories Podcast. Hello, you wonderful person. Thank you for listening to this episode of Horror Stories Podcast. I'm Robert Crandall. I hope you are well, prosperous, and happy. I want to thank Tim from the great state of Michigan for buying me food. Five coffees. Yes, thank you, thank you so much, Tim, for those wonderful coffees. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, hello, Robert. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm fine. Uh, and, and who who are you, by the way? I'm Arnie. Um, I'm the vampire slayer. I drive stakes through the hearts of uh, vampires, and and I want to just thank Tim uh, for those coffees and for you for sharing them. It really comes in handy after driving a steak through the heart of a uh, vampire. It's hard work, and uh, that coffee really came in handy. It was really great. Oh, well... Um, yeah, I know that is hard work, and uh, I'm glad we could uh, provide some coffee for you. I'm sure Tim appreciates all that you do and is happy to provide some coffee for you. Oh, thank you so much. I sure appreciate it. And thank you again, Tim. Well, uh, Robert, I better get back to work now. I've got to track down the pesky vampire, so I will talk, I'll talk to you later. Thank you again. Okay, well, thanks uh, thanks for stopping by. Okay, um, Arnie the Vampire Slayer there uh, uh, gave him one of the coffees, and uh, so thank you, Tim. We really appreciate it. Tim is uh, from uh, the great state of Michigan and uh, says he listens a lot, and I lost my notes here. <laughs> I know he said uh, he likes uh, Ambrose beers and... Uh, and uh, I thought, I <laughs> where's my notes? I had them here. Oh yeah, Algernon Blackwood. He likes that. And uh, is thank you so much, Tim. So yeah, he he lives in a small town in Michigan, and he says he listens while he drives to work, and mostly on an iPhone, on a podcast app. And I ask him what's his favorite, and he said he'd be hard pressed to. To uh, pick a a favorite out of nearly 200 episodes, but uh, like I said, he he likes Ambrose Bierce and Algernon Blackwood, and we have several of uh, episodes by uh, both of those two authors. And uh, if you would like, uh, I'd like to hear what you uh, uh, what you think. uh, Your uh, if you have a favorite episode or episodes, and how do you listen? Do you listen on a Uh, cell phone. Uh, Most people do, I guess, I guess uh, it's like over 90% listen to podcasts on mobile uh, devices. And, uh, you know, where do you listen? Do you listen at work? If so, don't get in trouble. I don't want you to lose your job or anything, you know, just be careful or or whatever. But, and uh, so anyway, if you'd like to to send me uh, stuff like that, and if you'd like to buy me a coffee, (laughs) Like I say, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Robert Crandall and it would be very much greatly appreciated and would help offset uh, and defray some of the expenses of uh, doing the podcast. So now uh, for our feature story. uh, In this story, a young man is deprived of a glorious future and inheritance when an old man swaps bodies with him. Oh, it gets ugly. I hope you enjoy The Story of the Late Mr. Elvisham by H.G. Wells. I set this story down, not expecting it will be believed but if possible, to prepare a way of escape for the next victim. He perhaps may profit from my misfortune. My own case, I know, is hopeless, and I am now in some measure prepared to meet my fate. My name is Edward George Eden. I was born in Trentham, in Staffordshire, my father being employed in the gardens there. I lost my mother when I was three years old and my father when I was five. My uncle, George Eden, then adopting me as his own son. He was a single man, self-educated and well-known in Birmingham as an enterprising journalist. He educated me generously, fired my ambition to succeed in the world and at his death, which happened four years ago, left me his entire fortune, a matter of five hundred pounds, after all outgoing charges were paid. I was then eighteen. He advised me in his will, to expend the money in completing my education. I had already chosen the profession of medicine, and through his posthumous generosity and my good fortune in a scholarship competition, I became a medical student at University College London. At the time of the beginning of my story, I lodged at 11A University Street in a little upper room, very shabbily furnished and drafty, overlooking the back of Shulbred's premises. I used this little room both to live in and sleep in because I was anxious to eke out my means to the very last shillings worth. I was taking a pair of shoes to be mended at a shop in the Tottenham Court Road, when I first encountered the little old man, with the yellow face, with whom my life has now become so inextricably entangled. He was standing on the curb, and staring at the number on the door in a doubtful way as I opened it. His eyes, they were dull gray eyes, and reddish under the rims, fell to my face, and his countenance immediately assumed an expression of corrugated amiability. You come, he said. After the moment, I had forgotten the number of your house. How do you do, Mr. Eden? I was a little astonished at his familiar address, for I had never set eyes on the man before. I was a little annoyed, too. It is catching me with my boots under my arm. He noticed my lack of cordiality. Wonder who the deuce I am, eh? A friend, let me assure you. I have seen you before, though you haven't seen me. Is there anywhere I can talk to you? I hesitated. The shabbiness of my room upstairs was not a matter for every stranger. Perhaps said I. We might walk down the street. I'm unfortunately prevented. My gesture explained the sentence before I had spoken it. The very thing, he said, and face this way and then that. The street? Which way shall we go? I slipped my boots down in the passage. Look here, he said abruptly. This business of mine is a rigmarole. "'Come and lunch with me, Mr. Eden. "'I'm an old man, a very old man, "'and I'm not good at explanations. "'And what with my piping voice "'and the clatter of the traffic?' "'He laid a persuasive skinny hand "'that trembled a little upon my arm. "'I was not so old that an old man "'might not treat me to a lunch, "'yet at the same time I was not altogether pleased "'by this abrupt invitation.' I had rather, I began. But I had rather, he said, catching me up, and a certain civility is surely due to my gray hairs. So I consented and went with him. He took me to Blavitsky's. I had to walk slowly to accommodate myself to his paces, and over such a lunch I had never tasted before, he fended off my leading question, and I took a better note of his appearance. His clean-shaven face was lean and wrinkled, his shriveled lips fell over a set of false teeth, and his white hair was thin and rather long. He seemed small to me, though indeed most people seemed small to me, and his shoulders were rounded and bent, and watching him, I could not help but observe that he too was taking note of me, running his eyes with curious touch of greed in them, over me, from my broad shoulders to my sun-tanned hands, and up to my freckled face again. And now, said he, as we lit our cigarettes, I must tell you of the business in hand. I must tell you then that I am an old man, a very old man. He paused momentarily. And it happens that I have money that I must presently be leaving and never a child have I to leave it to. I thought of the confidence trick and resolved I would be on the alert for the vestiges of my 500 pounds. He proceeded to enlarge on his loneliness and the trouble he had had to find a proper disposition of his money. I have weighed this plan and that plan, charities, institutions, and scholarships, and libraries, and I have come to this conclusion at last. He fixed his eyes on my face, that I will find some young fellow, ambitious, pure-minded, and poor, healthy in body, healthy in mind, and in short, make him my heir. Give him all that I have, he repeated. Give him all that I have, so that he will suddenly be lifted out of all the trouble and struggle in which his sympathies have been educated, to freedom and influence. I tried to seem disinterested. With a transparent hypocrisy, I said, and you want my help my professional services, maybe, to find that person. He smiled and looked at me over his cigarette, and I laughed at his quiet exposure of my modest pretense. What a career such a man might have, he said. It fills me with envy to think how I have accumulated that another man may spend. But there are conditions, of course." burdens to be imposed he must for instance take my name you cannot expect everything without some return and i must go into all the circumstances of his life before i can accept him he must be sound he must know his heredity how his parents and grandparents died have the strictest inquiries made into his private morals This modified my secret congratulations a little. And do I understand, said I, that I? Yes, he said almost fiercely. You, you. I answered never a word. My imagination was dancing wildly. My innate skepticism was useless to modify its transports. There was not a particle of gratitude in my mind. I did not know what to say, nor how to say it. But why me in particular? I said at last. He had chanced to hear of me from Professor Hasler, he said, as a typical sound and sane young man, and he wished as far as possible to leave his money where health and integrity were assured. That was my first meeting with the little old man, He was mysterious about himself. He would not give his name yet, he said, and after I answered some questions of his, he left me at the Blavitsky portal. I noticed that he drew a handful of gold coins from his pocket when it came to paying for the lunch. His insistence upon bodily health was curious. In accordance with an arrangement we had made, I applied that day for a life policy in the Loyal Insurance Company for a large sum, and I was exhaustively overhauled by the medical advisers of that company in the subsequent week. Even that did not satisfy him, and he insisted I must be re-examined by the great Dr. Henderson." It was Friday in Winson week before he came to a decision. He called me down quite late in the evening, nearly nine it was, from cramming chemical equations for my preliminary scientific examination. He was standing in the passage under the feeble gas lamp, and his face was a grotesque interplay of shadows. He seemed more bowed than when I had first seen him. "'and his cheeks had sunk in a little. "'His voice shook with emotion. "'Everything is satisfactory, Mr. Eden,' he said. "'Everything is quite, quite satisfactory. "'And this night of all nights, "'you must dine with me to celebrate your ascension.' "'He was interrupted by a cough. (laughs) "'You won't have long to wait, either.' he said, wiping his handkerchief across his lips and gripping my hand with his long bony claw that was disengaged. Certainly not very long to wait. We went into the street and called a cab. I remember every incident of that drive vividly. The swift, easy motion. The vivid contrast of gas and oil and electric light the crowds of people in the streets, the place in Regent Street to which we went, and the sumptuous dinner we were served with there. I was disconcerted at first by the well-dressed waiter's glances at my rough clothes, bothered by the stones of the olives, but as the champagne warmed my blood, my confidence revived. At first the old man talked of himself. He had already told me his name in the cab. He was Egbert Elvisham, the great philosopher whose name I had known since I was a lad at school. It seemed incredible to me that this man, whose intelligence had so early dominated mine, this great abstraction, should suddenly realize itself as this decrepit, familiar figure. I dare say every young fellow who has suddenly fallen among celebrities has felt something of my disappointment. He told me now of the future that feeble streams of his life would presently leave dry for me, houses, copyrights, investments. I had never suspected that philosophers were so rich. He watched me drink and eat with a touch of envy. What a capacity for living you have, he said, and then with a sigh, a sigh of relief, I could have thought it, it will not be long. Eh, said I, my head swimming now with champagne, I have a future, perhaps, of a passing agreeable sort, thanks to you, I shall now have the honor of your name. But you have a past, such a past as is worth all my future. He shook his head and smiled as I thought with half sad appreciation of my flattering admiration. That future, he said, would you in truth change it? The waiter came with liqueurs, you will not perhaps mind taking my name, taking my position, but would you indeed willingly take my years? With your achievements? said I gallantly. He smiled again. Come all, both, he said to the waiter and turned his attention to a little paper packet he had taken from his pocket. This hour, said he, This after-dinner hour is the hour of small things. Here is a scrap of my unpublished wisdom. He opened the packet with his shaking yellow fingers and showed a little pinkish powder on the paper. This, said he. Well, you must guess what it is. But Kamel, put a dash of this powder in it. It is Hamel. His large grayish eyes watched mine with an inscrutable expression. It was a bit of a shock to me to find this great teacher gave his mind to the flavor of liqueurs. However, I feigned an interest in his weakness, for I was drunk enough for such a small sycophancy. He parted the powder between the little glasses, and rising suddenly, with a strange, unexpected dignity. Held out his hand towards me. I imitated his action, and the glasses rang. To a quick succession, said he, and raised his glass towards his lips. Not that, I said hastily. Not that. He paused with the liqueur at the level of his chin and his eyes blazing into mine. To a long life, said I. He hesitated. To a long life, said he, with a sudden bark of laughter. Ha, ha! And with eyes fixed on one another, we tilted the little glasses. His eyes looked straight into mine, and as I drained the stuff off, I felt a curiously intense sensation. The first touch of it set my brain in a furious tumult. I seemed to feel an actual physical stirring in my skull, and a seething humming filled my ears. I did not notice the flavor in my mouth, the aroma that filled my throat. I saw only the gray intensity of his gaze that burnt into mine. The draft, the mental confusion, the noise and stirring in my head seemed to last interminable time. Curious, vague impressions of half forgotten things danced and vanished on the edge of my consciousness. At last he broke the spell with a sudden explosive sigh ah he put down his glass Well, he said it's glorious said i though i had not tasted the stuff my head was spinning i sat down my brain was chaos my perception grew clear and minute as though i saw things in a concave mirror His manner seemed to have changed into something nervous and hasty. He pulled out his watch and grimaced at it. Eleven-seven. And tonight I must... Seven-twenty-five. Waterloo! I must go at once! He called for the bill and struggled with his coat. Officious waiters came to our assistance. In another moment I was wishing him goodbye, over an apron of a cab, and still with an absurd feeling of minute distinctness, as though, how can I express it? I not only saw, but felt, through an inverted opera glass. That stuff, he said. He put his hand to his forehead. I ought not to have given it to you. It will make your head split tomorrow. Wait a minute, here. He handed me out a little flat thing like sablitz powder. Take that in water, as you are going to bed. The other thing was a drug. Not till you're ready to go to bed, mind. It will clear your head. That's all. One more shake. Futurus. I gripped his shriveled claw. Goodbye, he said. And by the droop of his eyelids, I judged, too, that he was a little under the influence of that brain twisting cordial. He recollected something else with a start, felt in his breast pocket, and produced another packet, this time a cylinder the size and shape of a shaving stick. Here, said he, I'd almost forgotten. Don't open this until I come tomorrow, but take it now it was so heavy that I well nigh dropped it. All right, said I, and he grinned at me through the cab window as the cabman flicked his horse into wakefulness. It was a white packet he had given me with red seals at either end and along the edge. If this isn't money, said I, it's platinum or lead. I stuck it with elaborate care into my pocket and with a whirling brain walked home through the Regent Street loiterers and the dark back streets beyond Portland Road. I remember the sensations of that walk very vividly, strange as they were. I was still so far myself that I could notice my strange mental state and wonder whether this stuff I had had was opium, a drug beyond my experience. It's hard now to describe the peculiarity of my mental strangeness. Mental doubling vaguely expresses it. As I was walking up Regent Street, I found in my mind a queer persuasion that it was Waterloo Station and had an odd impulse to get into the polytechnic as a man might get into a train. I put a knuckle in my eye, and it was Regent Street. How can I express it? You see a skillful actor looking quietly at you. He pulls a grimace, and lo, another person. Is it too extravagant if I tell you that it seemed to me as if Regent Street had for the moment done that? Then being persuaded it was Regent Street again, I was oddly muddled about some fantastic reminiscence that had cropped up. Thirty years ago, thought I, it was here that I quarreled with my brother. Then I burst out laughing, to the astonishment and encouragement of a group of night prowlers. Thirty years ago I did not exist, and never in my life had I boasted a brother. The stuff was surely liquid folly, for the poignant regret for that lost brother still clung to me. Along Portland Road, the madness took another turn. I began to recall vanished shops and to compare the street with what it used to be. Confused, troubled thinking is comprehensible enough after the drink I had taken, but what puzzled me were these curiously vivid phantasm memories that had crept into my mind and not only the memories that had crept in, but also the memories that had slipped out. I stopped opposite Stevens, the natural history dealers, and cudgelled my brains to think what he had to do with me. A bus went by and sounded exactly like the rumbling of a train. I seemed to be dipping into some dark, remote pit for the recollection, Of course, said I at last, he has promised me three frogs tomorrow, odd I should have forgotten. Do they still show children dissolving views? In those I remember one view would begin like a faint ghost, and grow and oust another. In just that way it seemed to me that a ghostly set of new sensations was struggling with those of my ordinary self. I went on through Euston Road to Tottenham Court Road, puzzled and a little frightened, and scarcely noticed the unusual way I was taking, for commonly I used to cut through the intervening network of back streets. I turned into University Street to discover that I had forgotten my number. Only by a strong effort did I recall 11A, and even then it seemed to me that it was a thing some forgotten person told me. I tried to steady my mind by recalling the incidents of the dinner, and for the life of me, I could conjure up no picture of my host's face. I saw him only as a shadowy outline, as one might see oneself reflected in a window through which one was looking. In his place, however, I had a curious exterior vision of myself, sitting at a table, "'flushed, bright-eyed, and talkative. "'I must take this other powder,' said I. "'This is getting impossible. "'I tried the wrong side of the hall "'for my candle and matches, "'and had a doubt of which landing "'my room might be on. "'I'm drunk,' said I. "'That's certain,' "'and blundered needlessly on the staircase "'to sustain the proposition. "'At the first glance my room seemed unfamiliar.' What rot, I said, and stared about me. I seemed to bring myself back by the effort, and the odd phantasmal quality passed into the concrete familiar. There was the old glass still with my notes on the albumen stuck in the corner of the frame, my old everyday suit of clothes pitched about the floor, and yet it was not so real after all. I felt an idiotic persuasion trying to creep into my mind, as it were, that I was in a railway carriage in a train just stopping, that I was peering out of a window at some unknown station. I gripped the bed rail firmly to reassure myself. It's clairvoyance, perhaps, I said. I must write to the Psychical Research Society." I put the rouleau on my dressing table, sat on my bed, and began to take off my boots. It was as if the picture of my present sensations was painted over some other picture that was trying to show through. Curse it, said I. My wits are going. Or am I in two places at once? Half undressed, I tossed the powder into a glass and drank it off. It evervested and became a fluorescent amber color. Before I was in bed, my mind was already tranquilized. I felt the pillow at my cheek, and thereupon I must have fallen asleep. I awoke abruptly out of a dream of strange beast and found myself lying on my back. Probably everyone knows that dismal emotional dream from which one escapes, awake, indeed, but strangely cowed. There was a curious taste in my mouth, a tired feeling in my limbs, a sense of cutaneous discomfort. I lay with my head motionless on my pillow, expecting that my feeling of strangeness and terror would pass away, and that I should then doze off again to sleep. But instead of that, my uncanny sensations increased. At first I could perceive nothing wrong about me. There was a faint light in the room, so faint that it was the very next thing to darkness, and the furniture stood out in it as vague blots of absolute darkness. I stared with my eyes just over the bedclothes. It came into my mind that someone had entered the room to rob me of my rouleau of money, but after lying for some moments, breathing regularly to simulate sleep, I realized this was mere fancy. Nevertheless, The uneasy assurance of something wrong kept fast hold of me. With an effort I raised my head from the pillow and peered about me at the dark. What it was I could not conceive. I looked at the dim shapes around me, the greater and lesser darknesses that indicated curtains, table, fireplace, bookshelves, and so forth. Then I began to perceive something unfamiliar in the forms of the darkness. Had the bed turned round? Yonder should be the bookshelves, and something shrouded and pallid rose there, something that would not answer to the bookshelves. However, I looked at it. It was far too big to be my shirt thrown on a chair. Overcoming a childish terror, I threw back the bedclothes and thrust my leg out of bed. Instead of coming out of my tuckle bed upon the floor, I found my foot scarcely reached the edge of the mattress. I made another step, as it were, and sat up on the edge of the bed. By the side of the bed should be the candle and the matches upon the broken chair. I put out my hand and touched nothing. I weighed my hand in the darkness, and it came against some heavy hanging, soft and thick in texture, which gave a rustling noise at my touch. I grasped this and pulled it. It appeared to be a curtain suspended over the head of my bed. I was now thoroughly awake and beginning to realize that I was in a strange room. I was puzzled. I tried to recall the overnight circumstances and found them now curiously enough, vivid in my memory. The supper my reception of the little packages, my wonder whether I was intoxicated, my slow undressing, the coolness to my flushed face of my pillow. I felt a sudden distrust. Was that last night or the night before? At any rate, this room was strange to me, and I could not imagine how I got into it. The dim pallid outline was growing paler, and I perceived it was a window with the dark shape of an oval toilet glass against the weak intimation of the dawn that filtered through the blind. I stood up and was surprised by the curious feeling of weakness and unsteadiness. With trembling hands outstretched, I walked slowly towards the window, getting nevertheless a bruise on the knee from a chair by the way. I fumbled round the glass, which was large, with handsome brass sconces, to find the blind cord, but I could not find it. By chance, I took hold of the tassel, and with the click of a spring, the blind ran up. I found myself looking out upon a scene that was altogether strange to me. The night was overcast, and through a foculent gray of the heaped clouds, there filtered a faint half-light of dawn. Just at the edge of the sky, the cloud canopy had a blood-red rim. Below everything was dark and indistinct, dim hills in the distance, a vague mass of buildings running up into pinnacles, trees like spilled ink, and below the window a tracery of black bushes and pale gray paths. It was so unfamiliar that for the moment I thought myself still dreaming— I felt the toilet table. It appeared to be made of some polished wood and was rather elaborately furnished. There were little cut glass bottles and a brush upon it. There was also a queer little object, horseshoe shape it felt, with smooth hard projections, lying in a saucer. I could find no matches, nor candlestick. I turned my eyes to the room again. Now the blind was up. Faint specters of its furnishing came out of the darkness. There was a huge curtained bed, and the fireplace at its foot had a large white mantle with something of the shimmer of marble. I leant against the toilet table, shut my eyes and opened them again, and tried to think. The whole thing was far too real for dreaming. I was inclined to imagine there was still some hiatus in my memory as a consequence of my draft of that strange liqueur, that I had come into my inheritance, perhaps, and suddenly lost my recollection of everything since my good fortune had been announced. Perhaps if I had waited a little, things would be clearer to me again. Yet my dinner with old Elsham was now singularly vivid and recent. The champagne, the observant waiters, the powder, and the liqueurs, I could have staked my soul it all happened a few hours ago. And then occurred a thing so trivial and yet so terrible to me that I shiver now to think of that moment. I spoke aloud and said How the devil did I get here? And the voice was not my own. It was not my own. It was thin. THE ARTICULATION WAS SLURRED, THE RESONANCE OF MY FACIAL BONES WERE DIFFERENT. THEN, TO REASSURE MYSELF, I RAN ONE HAND OVER THE OTHER AND FELT LOOSE FOLDS OF SKIN, THE BONY LAXITY OF AGE. SURELY, I SAID IN THAT HORRIBLE VOICE THAT HAD SOMEHOW ESTABLISHED ITSELF IN MY THROAT, SURELY, THIS THING IS A DREAM almost as quickly as if I did it involuntarily. I thrust my fingers into my mouth. My teeth had gone. My fingertips ran on the flaccid surface of an even row of shriveled gums. I was sick with dismay and disgust. I felt then a passionate desire to see myself, to realize at once in its full horror, the ghastly change that had come upon me. I tottered to the mantle and felt a long for it for matches. As I did so, a barking cough sprang up in my throat and I clutched the thick flannel nightdress I found about me. There were no matches there and I suddenly realized that my extremities were cold. Sniffing and coughing and whimpering a little, perhaps I I fumbled back to bed. It is surely a dream, I whispered to myself as I clambered back. Surely a dream. It was a senile repetition. I pulled the bedclothes over my shoulders, over my ears. I thrust my withered hand under the pillow and determined to compose myself to sleep. Of course it was a dream, In the morning the dream would be over, and I should wake up strong and vigorous again to my youth and studies. I shut my eyes, breathed regularly, and finding myself wakeful, began to count slowly through the powers of three. But the thing I desired would not come. I could not get to sleep and the persuasion of the inexorable reality of the change that had happened to me grew steadily. Presently I found myself with my eyes wide open, the powers of three forgotten, and my skinny fingers upon my shriveled gums. I was indeed suddenly and abruptly an old man. I had in some unaccountable manner fallen through my life and come to old age. In some way, I had been cheated of all the best of my life, of love, of struggle, of strength, and hope. I groveled into the pillow and tried to persuade myself that such hallucination was possible. Imperceptibly steadily, the dawn grew clearer. At last, despairing of further sleep, I sat up in bed and looked about me. A chill twilight rendered the whole chamber visible. It was spacious and well furnished, better furnished than any room I had ever slept in before. A candle and matches became dimly visible upon a little pedestal in a recess. I threw back the bedclothes, and shivering with the rawness of the early morning, albeit it was summertime, I got out and lit the candle. Then, trembling horribly, so that the extinguisher rattled on its spike, I tottered to the glass and saw Elvishem's face. It was nonetheless horrible because I had already dimly feared as much. He had already seemed physically weak and pitiful to me, but seen now dressed only in a coarse flannel nightdress, that fell apart and showed the stringy neck, seen now as my own body. I cannot describe its desolate decrepitude. The hollow cheeks, the strangling tail of dirty gray hair, the roomy bleared eyes, the quivering, shriveled lips, the lower displaying a gleam of pink interior lining and those horrible dark gums showing. You who are mind and body together at your natural years cannot imagine what this fiendish imprisonment meant to me. To be young and full of desire and energy of youth and to be caught and presently to be crushed in this tottering ruin of a body. But I wander from the course of my story. For some time I must have been stunned at this change that had come upon me. It was daylight when I did so far gather myself together as to think. In some inexplicable way, I had been changed, though how, short of magic, the thing had been done, I could not say. And as I thought, the diabolical ingenuity of Elvisham came to me, it seemed plain to me that as I found myself in his, so he must be in possession of my body, of my strength, that is, in my future. But how do I prove it? Then, as I thought, the thing became so incredible, even to me, that my mind reeled, and I had to pinch myself to feel my toothless gums, to see myself in the glass and touch the things about me before I could steady myself to face the facts again. Was all life hallucination? Was I indeed Elvisham? And he me? Had I been dreaming of Eden overnight? Was there any Eden? But if I was Elvisham, I SHOULD REMEMBER WHERE I WAS THE PREVIOUS MORNING, THE NAME OF THE TOWN IN WHICH I LIVED. WHAT HAPPENED BEFORE THE DREAM BEGAN? I STRUGGLED WITH MY THOUGHTS. I RECALLED THE QUEER DOUBLENESS OF MY MEMORIES OVERNIGHT. BUT NOW MY MIND WAS CLEAR, NOT THE GHOST OF ANY MEMORIES BUT THOSE PROPER TO EDEN COULD I RAISE. THIS WAY LIES INSANITY, I CRIED IN MY PIPING VOICE. I staggered to my feet, dragged my feeble, heavy limbs to the washstand, and plunged my gray head into a basin of cold water. Then, toweling myself, I tried again. It was no good. I felt beyond all question that I was indeed Eden, not Elvisham, but Eden in Elvisham's body. Had I been a man of any other age, I might have given myself up to my fate as one enchanted. But in these skeptical days, miracles do not pass current. Here was some trick of psychology. What a drug and a steady stare could do, a drug and a steady stare or similar treatment could surely undo. Men have lost their memories before but to exchange memories as one does umbrellas, I laughed, alas, not a healthy laugh, but a wheezing senile titter. I could have fancied old Elvishem laughing at my plight and a gust of petulant anger, unusual to me, swept across my feelings. I began dressing eagerly in the clothes I found lying about on the floor, and only realized when I was dressed that it was an evening suit, I had assumed. I opened the wardrobe and found some more ordinary clothes, a pair of plaid trousers, and an old-fashioned dressing gown. I put a venerable smoking cap on my venerable head, and coughing a little from exertions, tottered out upon the landing. It was then perhaps a quarter to six and the blinds were closely drawn and the house quite silent. The landing was a spacious one. A broad, richly carpeted staircase went down into the darkness of the hall below, and before me a door ajar showed me a writing desk, a revolving bookcase, the back of a study chair, and a fine array of bound books, shelf upon shelf. My study, I mumbled and walked across the landing, and then at the sound of my voice a thought struck me, and I went back into the bedroom and put in the set of false teeth. They slipped in with ease of old habit. That's better, said I, gnashing them, and so returned to the study. The drawers of the writing desk were locked. Its revolving top was also locked. I could see no indication of the keys, and there were none in the pockets of my trousers. I shuffled back at once to the bedroom and went through the dress suit, and afterwards the pockets of all the garments I could find. I was very eager, and one might have imagined that burglars had been at work to see my room when I had done. Not only were there no keys to be found, but not a coin— nor a scrap of paper, save the only receipted bill for the overnight dinner. A curious weariness asserted itself. I sat down and stared at the garments flung here and there. Their pockets turned inside out. My first frenzy had already flickered out. Every moment I was beginning to realize the immense intelligence of the plans of my enemy. To see more and more clearly the hopelessness of my position. With an effort I rose, and hurried hobbling into the study again. On the staircase was a housemaid pulling up the blinds. She stared, I think, at the expression of my face. I shut the door of the study behind me, and, seizing a poker, began an attack upon the desk. That is how they found me. The cover of the desk was split. The lock smashed, the letters torn out of the pigeonholes and tossed about the room. In my senile rage, I flung about the pens and other such light stationery and overturned the ink. Moreover, a large vase upon the mantel had got broken. I don't know how. I could find no checkbook, no money, no indications of the slightest use for the recovery of my body. I was battering madly at the drawers when the butler, backed by two women servants, intruded upon me. That simply is the story of my change. No one will believe my frantic assertions. I'm treated as one demented, and even at this moment I'm under restraint. But I am sane, absolutely sane. And to prove it, I have sat down to write this story minutely as the things happened to me. I appeal to the reader, whether there is any trace of insanity in the style or method of the story he has been reading. I am a young man, locked away in an old man's body. But the clear fact is incredible to everyone. Naturally, I appear demented to those who will not believe this. Naturally, I do not know the names of my secretaries, of the doctors who come to see me, of my servants and neighbors, of this town, wherever it is, where I find myself. Naturally, I lose myself in my own house and suffer inconveniences of every sort. Naturally, I ask the oddest questions. Naturally, I weep and cry out and have paroxysms of despair. I have no money, and no checkbook. The bank will not recognize my signature, for I suppose that, allowing for the feeble muscles I now have, my handwriting is still Eden's. These people about me will not let me go to the bank personally. It seems indeed that there is no bank in this town, and that I have an account in some part of London. It seems Elvisham kept the name of his solicitor secret from all his household i can ascertain nothing elvisham was of course a profound student of mental science and all my declarations of the facts of the case merely confirm the theory that my insanity is the outcome of overmuch brooding upon psychology dreams of the personal identity indeed two days ago I was a healthy youngster, with all life before me. Now I am a furious old man, unkempt, desperate, and miserable, prowling about a great, luxurious, strange house, watched, feared, and avoided as a lunatic by everyone about me. And in London, Elvisham, beginning life again in a vigorous body, with all the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of three score and ten. He has stolen my life. What has happened I do not clearly know. In the study are volumes of manuscript notes referring chiefly to the psychology of memory and parts of what may be either calculations or ciphers and symbols absolutely strange to me. In some passages, there are indications that he was also occupied with the philosophy of mathematics. I take it that he has transferred the whole of his memories, the accumulation that makes up his personality, from this old withered brain of his to mine, and similarly, that he has transferred mine to his discarded tenement. Practically, that is, he has changed bodies. But how such a change may be possible is without the range of my philosophy. I have been a materialist for all my thinking life. But here suddenly is a clear case of man's detachability from matter. One desperate experiment I am about to try. I sit writing here before putting the matter to issue. This morning, with the help of a table knife that I secreted at breakfast, I succeeded in breaking open a fairly obvious secret drawer in this wrecked writing desk. I discovered nothing, save a little green glass vial containing a white powder. Round the neck of the vial was a label, and thereon was written this one word, Release. This may be, is most probably, poison. I can understand Elvisham placing poison in my way, and I should be sure that it was his intention so to get rid of the only living witness against him were it not for this careful concealment the man has practically solved the problem of immortality, save for the spite of chance. He will live in my body until it has aged, and then again, throwing that aside, he will assume some other victim's youth and strength. When one remembers his heartlessness, it is terrible to think of the ever-growing experience that, how long has he been leaping from body to body? But I tire of writing. The powder appears to be soluble in water. The taste is not unpleasant. There the narrative found upon Elvisham's desk ends. His dead body lay between the desk and the chair. The latter had been pushed back probably by his last convulsions. The story was written in pencil and in a crazy hand, quite unlike his usual minute characters. There remain only two curious facts to record. Indisputably, there was some connection between Eden and Elvisham, since the whole of Elvisham's property was bequeathed to the young man, but he never inherited. When Elvisham committed suicide... Eden was strangely enough already dead 24 hours before he had been knocked down by a cab and killed instantly at the crowded crossing at the intersection of Gower Street and Euston Road so that the only human being who could have thrown light upon this fantastic narrative is beyond the reach of questions. Without further comment, I leave this extraordinary matter to the reader's individual judgment. You've been listening to the story of the late Mr. Elvisham by H.G. Wells, who once said, Affliction comes to us not to make us sad, but sober. Not to make us sorry, but wise. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I've enjoyed being with you, but now I must go. I hope to be with you again soon. Please be well, and thank you for listening to me.